2: It's funny sometimes because you look out and you'll see, you know, death rockers standing next to college jocks, next to skinheads, you know, next to new wave girls. I mean, there's something about us that doesn't, that, that brings all people in. It doesn't offend or it doesn't alienate or make somebody feel that just because they're not of the same style as us, that somehow they can't understand. There's something about the emotion and the intensity of the band that transcends genre.
3: welcome back to No Filler, the music podcast dedicated to sharing the often overlooked hidden gems that fill the space between the singles on our favorite records. My name is Travis, got my brother Quentin with me as always, Q. And (laughs) today marks the start of our 90s marathon Uh, we could spend forever in this decade. Uh, so we're just gonna we're just gonna see how long we can we can take it as far as how many episodes we're gonna devote to iconic nineties bands and and records. And we uh decided to start with Smashing Pumpkins debut record, Gish came out in nineteen ninety one. That was the voice of Billy Corgan talking about the uh the diverse crowd that that they would attract to their shows. You know, speaking to just how varied their sound was. You know, how you know, obviously, we're going to get into this big time today. You know, they were they were a grunge band. Yeah, they were right there alongside you know Nirvana and Stone Temple Pilots and all the rest of them in the early '90s, putting out this heavier rock music. But there's there's so much more to Smashing Pumpkins, right? It's man, yeah, it's it's so different, dude. And it's not just his voice. Will, I was going to say a lot of it. I think is dude. It well, yes. Okay, of course. There's more to it than just his voice. But his voice yeah. had such a soft, like I was listening. I've been listening to a lot of Pumpkins just the last couple of weeks. His voice goes from like this soft sweetness to this like almost like sour, uh, you know, sourness, like that. So, you know, yeah, dude. That's a that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I mean, and then it, compare that to. Cobain's voice right. and uh, or you know, Lane Eddie, Staley Eddie of them, Alice in Chains, like you know, and that's yeah. the funny thing. Lane Staley also had a very beautiful voice, you know. Yeah, well, and Smashing Pumpkins also had Darcy in the mix, right? And she would, she would, she actually has a track on Get. So <laughs> we're jumping the gun here. <laughs> all right, all right. So yeah, okay. So anyway, it's a great album. It really does showcase, like you know, again, '91 is the beginning of of grunge, you yeah. know. It really does showcase how how rock was transitioning, right? Like how 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 you go from you know the alternative rock and stuff of the late '80s into you know, including including uh, shoegaze into yeah grunge, right? And the Smashing Pumpkins were a great a great example of of, of the the bridge, you know. Yeah, and um, first time I've heard this album, dude. I listened to it for the first time. It probably it was probably three weeks ago now i never I never listened to Gish well you know after gish is Siamese dream and of course that's yeah. that's when they explode right so yeah pro- probably a lot of people their first album for smashing was probably Siamese dream at least that's when people probably started to notice them yeah and and another thing too you know were we were four in ninety one right so we weren't listening to our own music. We we heard Smashing Pumpkins through our brother, our older brother Spencer. I know I heard the singles from Siamese Dream. You know, like everyone else right. did. Well, well, I have a I have a distinct distinct memory of of sneaking in to Spencer's room, and he had that he had that CD tower, right? Oh yeah. Uh, and and I remember putting uh, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness on and listening to uh, Bullet with Butterfly Wings for some reason. I really like that song. I think I think we both did back back when we were kids. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because you know, I mean, think about it. It Starts with him saying, "You know, the world is a vampire." You know. Yep. Yeah. 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 I, I remember. I remember listening to that too. Um, but you know, Siamese Dream had today on it. Yes. And uh, disarm was pretty big too. Right, but melancholy. You know, that's when they had tonight. Tonight was a big one. Zero was a big one. Was that? Did that have nineteen seventy nine on it? Yes. It did. God, dude that that is my all time favorite, uh, like top maybe top twenty songs of all time, like favorite for me. I just, ugh, just something about. I think yeah, that th- song, th- dude. there definitely is something about it. Uh, you're right about that. And that 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 album came out in 1995, of course. So yeah, so but even between Gish and Siamese Dream, their sound kind of changed a little bit. I feel like what I like about Gish. A lot of times, it's it's got a it's a it's got a really good shoegaze sound. Yes, I was reading an interview that, well, actually, and I'll, I'll tell the full story later, but the album Gish, the name Gish, has actually popped up. If you follow like Rolling Stone magazine, or you're just a, a fan of the Pumpkins and you follow them on Twitter and stuff, you may have noticed a story that popped up last year uh, that talked about. Billy Corgan reuniting with his Gish era guitar. Oh yeah, I watched that a while yeah. ago now. Yeah, that was uh, I think earlier last year. I remember watching that. Yeah. So anyway, um, he described he described their sound when it shifted when they wrote Gish because you know they they were writing stuff before that as a band, but he said it went from goth like a goth rock mm-hmm. to more heavy psychedelic sound. And I think there is some psychedelicness uh, in early Smashing Pumpkins. But uh, what's interesting is he said that one of the reasons that they were able to make that shift is that he's a left-handed guitar player, but he plays he plays he plays right-handed guitars, but he's left-handed. Oh, I didn't know that. And he said that the 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 neck of this guitar, which was like a like a fifties era Fender Stratocaster, the neck just has uh, more give to it, and he's able to bend the strings a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And he he does that all over Gish, you know. That's one of you know part of his iconic sound is really aggressive, uh, string bending and uh, well, and yeah, and that reminds me of um, I'll never commit his name to memory, but the you know the main guy behind the, My Bloody Valentine that yeah that guitar style that he created was was through a lot of. Bending of of the strings. Yeah. So he says here that that uh, we started interpolating that style into what James was playing, and suddenly the sound of the band got way more beautiful, psychedelic, and wide. Yeah. So there you go. So all thanks to that guitar. Yeah, that's really cool. And he he was he said he was it's like he had been like reunited with it or something like he, yeah. So the story, the story is was. in 1992 they were playing. At some venue and somebody stole the guitar and just walked out the back door. Wow. And so that's 1992. So 27 years later, um somebody – some some lady had found it in a yard sale and bought it because she thought that it would look cool hanging up in her den. Like it wasn't even a guitar player. I, I want to know who – from from that point, who found out or who realized – uh, that's fucking Billy Corgan's guitar, by the way. <laughs> you know, like no, no, yeah. The story is one of her friends was a was a fan of the Pumpkins and, and saw some image or something like that of it, and she's like, I think I'm pretty sure that's pretty Billy <laughs> Corgan's 1991 era guitar. <laughs> that must be a a huge fan. Well, the funny thing is, he put this paint, he had this paint job that he put on it to make it look psychedelic, and that was one of the things that that gave it away. Yeah, but anyway. Uh I wasn't planning on telling that story this early on in the episode, but sorry here we yeah. are you... sorry so yeah let's well, let's just uh so what do you wanna do here do you wanna you want to give a a brief background yeah, so i just i wanted to talk a little bit about you know Billy as a guitarist early on, you know, and then kinda how they all found each other and formed the band, so his dad was a professional uh jazz funk guitarist, so but along with that. His dad, you know, his dad wasn't around very often, you know, because of his professional career as a touring guitarist. So he was kind of self taught. And um, when he was really young, uh, do you remember those tests that they would give in school? It was like a hearing test, and you like you like you you raise your hand, you know, whatever. When yeah, you they the would sound. play three different tones, or or, or no, two three tones. One of the two was different, you know? And so you raise your yeah. hand when you hear the, the, the different tone. Right, and right. he apparently scored higher than anyone in the history of, of them administering that at his school, so much so that they had him come back and do it again, and then the second time he took it, he scored even higher. Hmm. So he was told early on, hey, you know, you might, your son might be a musical savant or whatever. Um, so anyways... You know it's always something that was in his mind like well, it, when you, you if know. your dad's a jazz funk guitar player, you know that's right you know, it's probably one of those things that crosses your mind, yeah, you know, so growing up in a musical household, gets himself a guitar, starts playing around with you know filling with the guitar, laying down these really cool like guitar solo tracks and stuff. but here's a clip from Billy talking about this era and um kind of what led to him wanting to to start a band.
2: As a guitar player, in my mind, I wanted something to frame what I was doing in. So just being able to, say, play a good solo seemed to be worthless if they didn't have some context. So then I would start making these little songs. I took these little snippets of things, like, what if I took the lyricism of a Bob Dylan and combined it with the riffs of Black Sabbath and the atmosphere of uh, Love and Rockets or something? Can I put these things together? And I just kind of built my own world to where I had enough information and enough of a kind of a logic system in there that I at least started from a perspective of, right, I don't want to do anything that anybody else is doing. And it's only going to work for, for me if I go down this path.
3: So yeah, I'm glad that, uh, he mentioned black Sabbath in that, in that quote, cause I've got something he said in, um, in a Rolling Stones interview here that he did in 1994. They asked him, what groups have you used as building blocks for your band? And he says, eight years old, I put on the Black Sabbath record, and my life is forever changed. It sounded so fucking heavy. It rattled the bones. I wanted that feeling. With Bowhouse and The Cure, it was the ability to create a mood and an atmosphere. The air gets heavier. With Jimi Hendrix, it was the ability to translate this other level of guitar – Cheap trick. It was a vocal influence, although Tom Peterson once told me that Rick Nielsen called us tuneless and non-melodic. <laughs> it's kind of funny. So yeah, that I mean, that's like early on. That's that's kind of cool. You know, in his mind, he's thinking like, oh well, let me just borrow like you know the lyricism or like the vocal delivery of like Bob Dylan. Right. Mix it in with with Black Sabbath and Jimi Hendrix. And he's talking about here cheap trick. You know the yeah. cure, but yeah, if you you know, since eight years old, he, he you know Black Sabbath influenced him from that early of an age. Yeah, and that's the thing, man. I think everybody remembers remembers the first time they heard the the self titled Black Sabbath album, the very first record. At least I do because I remember listening to it when I was a teenager. Uh, and yeah, it's just one of those those one of those uh, transformative moments, or at least it can be if you're a fan of metal. Where it's like, man, I get it. You know, these guys really were sort of the the, the ones that started it all. But yeah, uh, I've I've heard that um, that Tony Iommi is a huge, huge influence on on the heavier sound that that Corgan tries to get out of his guitar. You know, that's why he has so much fuzz in his his amp and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So and like you know, so kind of like what he was saying. You know, I could really only achieve this sound, you know, or these ideas that I have in my head of of what I want to do as a musician by going down a certain path, laying down these guitar solos and writing all this stuff is is cool, but without a proper band or a proper vision, you know, there's no there's no context behind it or whatever. It's basically it sounds like he's saying I you know, I'm I can't just be an act of one or whatever. Maybe not follow the path that my dad did and just be a, you know, a guitarist for hire. So jumped to 1988 he's early 20s he's back home in chicago uh and he takes a job at a record store and that's where he meets guitarist james Iha. and pretty early on they decided to to start a band early on it was just them two and a drum machine and uh their sound early on was heavily influenced by the cure and new order you know so like the gloomy kind of art rock stuff and I think like he was saying, that's probably the goth stuff that he was talking about. Yep. Um and so it's kind of a funny story of how they eventually meet uh Darcy, who is the bass player. Uh apparently Corgan was at a concert in Chicago, so he was he was, you know, in the audience watching a concert. And Darcy was in the crowd and overheard Billy Corgan. Criticizing the band, <laughs> uh and they had kind of an argument and a, a discussion about the merits of the band, and then she, he found out that she plays bass and recruited her for the band. So it's funny that they were just, you know, side by side at a at a rock concert. Neither of them knew each other, but she overheard Billy going like, "Ah, I don't like this band because of this and that," or "Oh my god, I can't believe they just did that." And then she jumps in and they start a discussion over the band that was playing. <laughs> So they they united on on their dislike of a band that they're saying together. Yeah. Either their dislike or their disagreement on <laughs> mm. on how they thought about the band. Apparently, the I band hope it was, was a disagreement. Yeah, right. That would make for a better, you know. Let's just say that story. Yeah. Right. Um. So it's the three of them now. They're a trio. They still just have a, a drum machine. The owner of some some club that they wanted to play at. Basically agreed to book them on one condition, they replace the drum machine with a live drummer. That's a fair fair request. <laughs> yeah. So here's where Jimmy Chamberlain comes in. He's he's the uh eventual drummer for for Smashing Pumpkins. And this is all around the same time. This is all happens pretty quickly. Uh Chamberlain sees them as their, you know, as the trio and drum machine band. He sees them play. At a club in Chicago. And he says, man, did they sound horrible. They were atrocious. But the thing I noticed was that not only were the song structures good, but Billy's voice had a lot of drive to it, like he was dying to succeed. And the funny thing is, here's what Corgan has to say about him reflecting back on meeting Jimmy for the first time. He says he was wearing a pink t-shirt, stone-washed jeans. He had a mullet haircut. He was driving a 280Z. So, a sports car, and he had yellow drums. We were all sort of looking at each other, thinking, This ain't going to happen, man. This is not the guy. So, the irony because Corgan played a yellow Stratocaster, maybe not at that time, but. Well, but like when you think of yellow drums, you uh, know, like whatever. you think of like Def Leppard or like, I don't know. I guess, yeah. So, sure, why not? Chamberlain was in a band called JP and the Cats, and they were kind of like. They're terrible, dude. I look. I looked up a few clips of the band. They're basically, you know, a band that you hire to play at your wedding or something. Which is this is why Corgan's like he takes one look at Jimmy Chamberlain. And it's like there's no fucking way, you know. But don't ever judge a book by its cover. It's just, yeah. Well, and it's funny too because when you listen to some of the guitar solos, well, and like the drumming too, and like there are times where it does sound like that kind of '80s, kind of like. Uh, I read a quote saying that that Smashing Pumpkins and this album throws down like Guns and Roses on a My Bloody Valentine trip. Okay, I think that's pretty accurate, dude. Especially so. Actually, let's. This is a good segue into our first clip. The guitar solo in in "Bury Me," which is the first song I'm going to play, is very like guns and roses kind of stuff or van halen yeah i mean we we touched on this uh on our very first episode on alice and chains that yeah i mean think about it i mean this is the these guys probably listened to some of that hair metal when they were when they were growing up or when they were learning how to play guitar and stuff because that was the quote-unquote metal or at least the popular metal that was happening back then you know so especially you remember we have talked about how um if you look at older images of Pantera, I mean, they look exactly like right. those, those hair metal bands, like Death you know? Leopard and Twisted right. Sister. So yeah, yeah. It, it, and this is what we were talking about with the the bridge between the eighties sound and the start of the of the nineties grunge. Like you you hear yeah. it in these early grunge albums, and, and it is cool with with Smashing Pumpkins. They they are kind of like they're they're a great. I mean, they're they're a bridge between like shoegaze and grunge and and you know the the kind of rock that 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 came before it so let's play the first track which is what is it track three yeah nope track four who cares uh we played a little bit of rhinoceros in the intro uh so for our first clip we're gonna jump down to track four the next track on the record it is called bury me track man so yeah i like uh i like that the little thing that he does with his voice during the chorus he repeats like
0: hi hi
3: yeah I, I think darcy's doing back that's vocals, darcy I, th- I think that might be darcy i don't know man that sounds like corgan to me it could have been him on the recording but yeah that's the thing corgan has such a a, a high high range with his vocals you know yeah but that guitar solo, right? I mean, that's yeah, sure, straight yeah, straight out a, of the sure eighties. Yeah. I will say, and I can't. I tried to look it up real quick just to, to verify, it, but I would say that Darcy's bass sound sounds a lot like the bass player from Allison Chains.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: His name is Mike Inez. But um, you know, the you know Allison Chains were were active, you know, and had already produced, put out Facelift. Uh, so maybe you know who knows maybe maybe she was influenced by by their sound, yeah. Hard to say, but anyway, it it had that kind of that sound. But yeah, it, it's a great track, and you know we were both talking earlier about this song and like there's this change that happens at the second half of the yes. song. Which I love is it, dude. One of those reasons that like here we go, man. Like the the sweet, the sweet and the sour, or whatever. If you want to go with that. And the way that it transitions to the next track. Yes. A lot of them have almost like two movements, you know? So yeah, that's why we split up this one into, into two clips. Let's fade into the last half of the song. So this is clip two from Bury Me. A little bit more sweet, man. I'd say he was a little more sour in the first clip. Love it. Yeah, Love I just it. like that. I like that transition that they do there. Um, yeah, because like you said, it's like it's a whole separate. It could almost be a separate song, like a like the start right. of a new idea. I feel like we talked about this with with My Bloody Valentine, and I'm sure a few other bands that we've covered on this podcast. Uh, Corgan pretty much shunned every major label that offered to record. Their music because to him you know he said he says that what the band does is so specific that we could not dilute it in any way we couldn't put ourselves in the position where we were powerless so they eventually signed with an indie record label called caroline records um and you know that way they were able to to maintain control of what they what what they wanted in their sound and they have butch vig come in to produce the record later on that same year Butch Vig ends up recording Nirvana's Nevermind and he's also produced I mean he dude, the list is is insane now but he was still kind of making a name for himself back then he goes on to to produce a few Sonic Youth records he's he's worked with the Foo Fighters now dude it's funny that you said Sonic Youth because I wanted to mention Sonic Youth um because I feel like uh, the sound of that, the second part of that song kind of reminded me of the Sonic Youth sound, which obviously Sonic Youth was well, well into their, 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 their music at that point, you know, they were very well known. Uh, yeah. You know, it, the thing about it, like, I like, I what I liked about that part is like, he's doing these like open, open string chords, almost, like these open chords. He's very, mm-hmm. uh, but, but for, you know, with a lot of a lot of fuzz still on the on the guitar, so it sounds it just sounds really cool. It kind of reminded me of Sonic Youth, like I was saying, it's sort of that noise rock. Um, you know, and Sonic Youth had a lot of similarities to Shoegaze, but they they like they predated Shoegaze. So, anyway, I, I, you know, it's funny I didn't realize the Butch Vig did Sonic Youth stuff too. Yeah, yeah. So Butch was recording and producing records at the time. But he was doing records for for indie labels that had small budgets, you know, that only allowed for about three to four days of recording time. So there, he was just knocking them out, you know. Um, actually, I'm let's I'm going to let Butch talk about this a little bit. I've got a, I've got a clip of him kind of talking about about recording Gish.
1: Gish was the first record where I really had a chance to work on the sounds and, and to really try and make a great sounding statement we spent about 30 days recording and mixing up until then i think every record i'd done had been about three or four days you know track everything in one day overdub all the vocals in the second day and then mix everything in the third day and i did hundreds of records that way it was good learning because you have to do things really quickly just make decisions really quickly and and uh get things done because there there was no time to to even think about things like that if, if it was good enough or if it could be better gish was the first record where i could really spend time getting tones and and really work with the band and with billy corgan specifically because he was uh very much a perfectionist like i was and and i loved it we were sort of we would push each other but we were on the same wavelength and gish made a lot of noise when it came out um the record kind of took yeah it.
3: man i like that it made a lot of noise when it came out I like yeah that. yeah so, like he was saying, b- before Gish, he was just cranking out records, you know, for for indie labels with small budgets. Um, he thinks of both Gish and obviously Nevermind, you know, looking back, those were the two albums that kind of changed everything for him. Because after those two albums came out, the phone just wouldn't stop again. He was getting asked to produce everyone. Oh my God, everyone. yeah, dude. Yeah. Especially after Nevermind, obviously. Yeah, so real quick, I just wanted to, uh, you know, I didn't even think about this until just now, but I, I remember reading, so I had said that that Corgan moved back to his hometown of Chicago in the late 80s. Well, he had, he had moved down to Florida before that to join a, a band called The Marked, and this was like that goth rock kind of stuff that he was doing even before he met James, but I remember reading somewhere that that was a thing that he experienced too because he recorded some stuff with The Marked and it was the same th- kind of thing they only had about 3 to 4 3 or 4 days to to make a record, you know, cuz there just wasn't any money in the budget for it. So, I wonder how how they were able to get that with Butch, you know, I'm wondering what it was that changed as far, you know, cuz it's an indie record label. I'm wondering how why why they decided to you know, spend a little bit more money and and give them a little bit more time. Maybe it's just because they heard demos, maybe or maybe because heard... you were saying that like the you know he was so meticulous about and it's sort yeah. of perfectionist. Maybe maybe it's part of that. Yeah, I guess Caroline Records is probably the only one that would give him. So so Butch said that they recorded it over thirty days. So I mean, that's dude, just that's so much longer to to what they're they were both used to in the past. Just just having to crank it out in three or four days versus thirty days in... and. Both of them were kind of perfectionists. Like Butch, Butch was—he like he said, like it was, it was cool to to find. He called him, um, uh, comrade in arms who wanted to push me and who really wanted me to push him back. So, uh, do you want to jump to to the next song? Yeah, yeah. And so, what I like about this pick here is that it's kind of the softer side of of the sound. Dude, I lo- the first time I heard Crush, man. It got me, uh, and we're going to play the whole song. And I want to. Sometimes we like to play the very end of a track so that you can hear the transition between songs because it's you know for us that's part of the 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 you know beauty of of listening to a record from start to finish is to enjoy those transitions and to see what the producer and the band like see how they wanted it to flow from song to song. So we're going to play the very end of bury me. uh, And then we're going to play, we're going to have it go straight into crush. Yeah, man, it's a it's a beautiful song, yeah. and it's a love song. I mean, you look at the lyrics; it's a it's a it's a love song. There's this yeah. great Billboard article that that goes track by track, and the person who wrote it says, "As the bass tiptoes across the bedroom, trying not to squeak a floorboard, hmm. Corgan whispers sweet nothings to his sleeping lover." Yeah. Yeah, and there's really no drums whatsoever. No, right? no, but he's got a little tambourine or something like that. And I was gonna say, dude, I'm a sucker for for a well placed tambourine, dude, for a good tambourine. Yeah, so like you know, there's acoustic guitar, and then there's the cleaner sounding electric guitar. So Corgan and James are kind of playing off each other in that regard. And yeah. there's definitely he's got you know, this probably plays into the uh, the psychedelic label that that he put on the on their early sound. Like he's got like a flanger pedal or like a phaser pedal or something like that for that, that clean sound that he's getting that guitar, that kinda tremolo almost sound. I think that's yeah. like a phaser pedal or something like that, or a flange flange. Yeah, pedal. something. I feel yeah, like this really song cool. and this sound is kinda like like a preview of what's to come with 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 what Corgan does with with the pumpkin yeah, sound moving sure. forward. Yeah. Well, so like, you know, I I feel like it's just so important that this came out in 91 and it came out before nevermind came out because like, so there's a quote here from that, that 1994 interview that he did with rolling stones. Basically they, they, the, the question is just like, it's not really a question. The interviewer says, so things changed dra- drastically in 91, huh? And then Billy says, we can pretty much judge things by pre-Nirvana and post-Nirvana, at least for my generation and for my peers. That was the absolute turning point. Now it's grown up to the point that the carpet's not going to be yanked out and we're not going to go disco anytime soon. This is not born of fashion. This is not born of fads. Basically talking about the staying power of grunge, right? And that hard Nirvana helped helped do that, right? But I think it's interesting that this album came out before Nevermind, because had it come out after, would it have been as successful? Because like nobody had heard Nirvana yet, or at least nobody had heard Nevermind yet, right? I mean, yeah, and I mean, just, it always it makes just, you wonder. Just a few months later, really. Let's see, right? Just a Never- few months. Nevermind comes out in September. Uh, when, when did Gish come out? Was it like June or July? I think came out in uh, in May. Okay, yeah, dude. So uh, let's let's name off the top ten, shall we? Maybe not all ten, but but here's here's the the top. Top of the charts for rock albums of 91. Well, not just rock, because Tribe Called Quest is on there with the low-end theory. Never mind. Tin by Pearl Jam. There's a U2 album on there. Metallica is on there with the black album. Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And then you've got a couple albums by Guns N' Roses. They released, I guess it was part one and two, Use Your Illusion. So, you know, that was that, that's the landscape at the time, dude. I think it says a lot that Black Album came out in 91, too, because, you know, it's kind of the end of, of the thrash metal era, right? A lot of people would say the Black Album is, is you know, Metallica changing, uh, you know, irreversibly, basically. The Black Album is when Metallica stops being thrash, you know. They put out Justice for All, which is, like, one of their most, like, complicated records as far as, like, what they were doing like song arrangements and stuff and then they go into black album obviously and uh become even more successful and hit the mainstream and all that stuff yeah but it's just funny because 91 thrash metal of the 80s is over you know even metallica is changing and becoming more mainstream and then grunge hits the same year like 91 man what a huge year for rock oh yeah dude rem shows up on there with with out of time what what shows up on out of time I gotta say, I'm not too familiar with their stuff from the from the 90s. I, I'm a big fan of REM's oh, 80s, "Losing though. My Religion," dude. Mm, yeah, and that's the thing, man. REM, the REM sound is also very much 90s too. You know, obviously, the, the, you know they were they were hugely successful still in the 90s, putting out a, a ton of great stuff. Yeah, dude, man, it really was an important time, dude, for for music. Uh, yeah, I mean, the 90s was the last the last true solid decade for rock and roll you know it just was you know moving forward it just branches off into so many different it was the last there, decade you know? for mainstream success in rock yeah. music right yeah if you want to put it that way yeah because really like most most mainstream rock now really like blurs the lines between like pop yeah and disco even but basically rock. from the 2000s on you know it's it's hip-hop dominates right, not hip-hop pop music in general pop music yeah. right yeah, and so. dude, and we're in, in, we're including Tame Impala in that now. Kings of yes. Leon is now a huge pop band, sure, you know. Sure. But I'm just saying, like, as far as like the dominant the dominant music, you know, rock and roll was still was still the dominant yeah. genre. I feel like in the '90s. Yeah. All right, so we've got one more song that I want to play. Uh, I want to jump down to the last track on the album. It's called Daydream. The reason I want to play it is because Darcy is the main singer for this one. Uh, And I like it because it's got a really awesome, just straight up shoegaze, My Bloody Valentine vibe. Big fan of it. I will say, I, I don't want to play it, but there is a secret track on the record that happens about 10 seconds after Daydream. It's just a weird little, like, two verse song by Corgan. You're going to uh, tease it and not play it. All right. We'll play it. Let's just play the whole song then. All right. Uh, including the the secret track. Some people say that the lyrics kind of allude to the splintering of the band from that point on. Mm. So here's here's the last track on the record. It is called Daydream. Easy. yeah what the hell dude they could have left could have left it on such a high note you know with that really pretty the question is q did he sneak it in see no that's the thing too like was, I was just that a thinking, hidden message think about how, how all the other record labels or producers who would have been like no fucking way dude we're not gonna put that in at the end i bet butch was just like sure man why not <laughs> you know that's what i'm saying like did if he had if he's got beef with his band members did he sneak that in yeah, I probably see, not. we're and, probably and, reading too much into it, right? Well, and I purposely didn't want to even go down that road because that's yeah, like because yeah. now Corgan is you know infamously like just you know big headed and and yes, kind of full himself and and I saw I, that- I saw a quote that said that he hadn't he hadn't he hadn't been in the same room as Darcy in like well over a decade, so yeah. But like the lyrics, there, like I'm going crazy. I don't want feelings, your feelings. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Of course, we we could we could freaking like nitpick these these lyrics. But yeah, that, well, let's talk was... about well, let's talk about the song that we play okay. here, the the last track. Uh, you're right. Like it, it makes me want to hear more. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to look to see if she was in any other band, and and really, there's not much else out there that she's done. Um, but yeah, her voice definitely, like you said very very shoegaze mm-hmm. sounding voice that kind of soft delivery i liked it i like the way she 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 delivered delivered that song i like it yeah well and shout out to butch Vig too for for the way he you know mixed it and everything sure yeah sure all right so that's that um so before we dive into our what you heard let's take a quick break All right, we're back. So, um, anything else, dude? you want to throw anything else on there about about the pumpkins before we dive into our beloved what you heard segment? I'm gonna tease what we're gonna do. We do we know what we're gonna cover next week for our, our sidetrack? No, we do not. Yeah, we'll figure it out. So we'll we'll try and find either a side project from one of these members, or you know, maybe a maybe we can play you know a huge influence band for them. Something we'll figure it out. Yeah, I think the only other thing I want to add about the Smashing Pumpkins is like how constant they've. As far as like when I think back to to rock bands that have been like there since like the beginning of my starting to like starting to notice and listen to music, you know, it's, they're one of them, dude. They're one of the bands because, like I said. Before I had my own records, record collection, buying my own CDs, I would go and sneak into our older brother's room and, and listen to to Smashing Pumpkins, you know? Yeah. Like, this was one of those formative bands. I may not have ever really dive – you know, I, I haven't really dove deep into them before, but I'm starting to, you know? But, uh, yeah, I would just say, like like you said, man – 1979 is is yeah I'm with you it's one of my favorite songs from that from that era if not one of my favorite rock songs of all time. Yeah. The stuff on Siamese Dream is just fucking killer man. Yeah dude. Like those some of those songs are just so iconic and Smash Republicans really do bring something different to the to the table you know for for grunge music from that from that decade. Yeah. But yeah like you know cherub Brock Get out of here, man. Well, or 1979 was on uh Melancholy. No, I oh, I know. I'm just saying that the stuff on Siamese Dream is all is just as as great yeah. as as 1979. You know, totally. But yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so that kicks off our our stint into the 90s, dude. And we're we're gonna try to cover a wide range of of genres. But I mean, it's gonna be a lot of rock. You know, it's just <laughs> it's just how it is for us. What we decided, Q, is uh. Stone Tip of Pilots, Purple. It's going to be the next, the next uh, full length episode that we do. So that's going to be a good one, man. That's another, yes. another another flavor in the spectrum of grunge music, you know. Yep. All right, man. So it's our it's time for what you hurts. This right, is you. when we, you know, I just want to remind people what it's all about. Uh, Travis and I are listening to music all the time, and every week I hear at least one new song or. F- find a new band you know so we like to share share these tunes with you all just a way to to get get some more music in, into each episode travis i think i know what you're gonna play unless you change yes it. you do okay you do well let me let me let me go first okay uh because i'm ex- i'm really excited about this band i just found them well they found me someone shared them Whoa, with me they found you well it, this was another another post that someone did on the vinyl subreddit Okay, which is great. I've I found a lot of great music through that through that music community. This is a band called Alten Gun. They are a Turkish psychedelic rock band. The guy who formed the band has a huge fascination with Turkish sounds from the seventies. So he decided to to form a contemporary band and to combine the traditional Turkish sound with. Western rock influences. I had a really hard time picking what song to share with you, dude. So I'm just going to play the first track on the record. We're going to play it all the way through. It's just over two and a half minutes. I think it's pronounced Yolchu. a great track very psychedelic I, I, I love the way that they like you said the turkish they they combine that traditional style dude yeah really really well I, I love that stuff man you know um i like it when bands when bands do that man because it's like you know I, i've talked about the band uh sepultura the metal band mm-hmm. and how they used to uh um, incorporate kind of brazilian stuff into their metal music and it just like it's just it, it adds that that flavor that you haven't heard before or tasted before what's great about it it's like some it's something that i didn't realize that i was missing in my life you know well yeah it's like because we're not going to hear that it makes you appreciate um that 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 music and they're they're able to breathe new life into it anyways uh the album is called Geechee. came out in 2019 again the band is called alton goon and this entire album is great and there's also a female singer and they kind of... It seems like they swap songs. I mean, like, like there's no song where they're both singing at the same time. So, that's why it was really hard for me to pick a song. Because her songs are also really, really awesome. Well, um, I mean, if, if, if you liked what you heard, go check out the rest of the record. Yeah. Yeah. All right, dude. Um, I, I'm excited to hear your song again. Because as soon as you heard it, you shared it with me. And, dude, it's like dreams are coming true, bro. Yes. yes. Dreams are coming true. Uh, this is one of those those artists that uh, you have to stop everything you're doing and listen, at least for us, because of how important um, this particular fella is, especially this side project. So I'm talking about Mr. Erland Oria, And of course he is one half of the folk duo Kings of convenience. And uh, we did an episode on them. We talked about uh, right on an empty street, or did we talk about, so we Quiet ended up. New we actually ended up releasing both. Remember, because we covered. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we okay. we we we've got both of their uh, earlier albums. Uh, yeah, we covered both of them. Yeah, the the Norwegian Sweethearts. <laughs> yes, that's right. So Erland has a a ton of side projects. He's always involved with something. Yeah, but he had a side project that he did called the Whitest Boy Alive, and it's just this. There's these two albums that they put out both um, in the you know. Over a decade ago. Um, So like, I just wasn't expecting it. And I was listening to um, my Spotify's release radar playlist, which comes out once a week. Every time there's new music that that comes out from a band that you follow. And I just, I heard it and I was like, this has got to be, is this who I think it is? You know? And (laughs) then sure enough, man. Oh man. So good. I thought for sure that all we we were ever going to have. Were those were two those albums two. From, from the early aughts, dude? Yeah. Well, here you go, Q. According to uh, Wikipedia, on March 5th, 2020, the band released a brand new single, "Serious," officially beginning their comeback. Oh. And that's what I want, man. I want a full comeback. I want a full record. Fuck. And I'm sure they will. Yes. This can't be the only thing that they that they recorded when they were in the studio. There, but anyway, dude, there's, um, man, there's the perfect 70s disco rock. Yes, exactly. so man. good. It's, it is so good and his voice is just amazing. Uh, so anyway, let's without further ado, you, Q, should we play the whole song? I don't care if this is a full, if this yes. is a long episode. let's play let's it. play the whole song because there's so many cool parts in this song, especially yeah. like that that keyboard kind of solo at the end. So yeah, let's just play the whole song. So this song um, again it's it's super fresh came out uh, March 5th and uh, the song is called Serious by the Whitest Boy Alive. I It's like they picked up right where they left off, man. Yeah, really. Yeah, exactly, man. Uh, man, I just love the the, the keyboard player, man. Uh, I think he plays like a Rhodes or something like that, like you know one of those older yep. synthesizer things. But oh. um yeah, so I would encourage you if you like that. Obviously, go back and listen to their first two records but and and we'll put this in the show notes on the website nofieldpocast dot com there's this uh this live concert video that I always remember of them playing in the storefront. yes, I've seen that, yeah, and i I always remember the bass players like green he was wearing a green shirt and green pants of the same color. I don't know why I always remember that, but anyway, man, these guys put on a fucking show because and of course they're playing 1517 which is like one of their freaking bangers oh, that's you know? such a good song anyway um yeah we'll put that uh put that on the show notes for you but yeah man uh, like you said disco there's a little bit of disco in it but like it's dance music a lot of it maybe not necessarily that song but um there's just something about and the funny thing is like the songs are simple too they're they're kind of yes, simple they're very simple at least with dreams their first album yeah. You can tell from the recording and what they left. Like they leave in count ins and stuff. It was recorded yeah. live. I wonder if right. they're sticking with that because it sounds almost like no time has passed at all in between You're right. These their their first two albums in this new release, and I'm not knocking them for that. And you know what, dude? That's the same with Kings of Convenience. Yes. You know, as far as like it doesn't matter how long between albums, you know, when they come back together and do something, it's just the sparks start to fly again. Right. So when you look at the um their, their Wikipedia page, you can kind of follow along here of like how people like you and me, huge fans, uh, kind of lost all hope. It says here in June 2014, the band announced via their Facebook page that they are no longer composing or playing together as the Wise Boy Live. I remember and reading then, that, dude. Yeah, yeah. And then in, in August of 2017, they said they're going to perform a 45-minute one-off reunion show in Syracuse, Italy. And then in 2019, they announced via their Facebook page – you got to follow them on Facebook if you want to stay in touch, it sounds like – that they would play the Fauna Festival in Chile and expressed an interest in booking further shows. That was September of 2019. So, you know, basically, you know, they said they were no longer composing together. Obviously, you know, when these guys get together, they can't help it. Yeah, they must have just been like, what the? why did we ever stop? Right, so obviously, I bet you when they did that reunion show a few years later, and then they're like, "Hey, you know, what? we we could book a few more shows, maybe." And then there you go; they're back in the studio making new music. So, anyway, um, I'm sure as they put out more singles, or if they put out a, a full length record, we'll be talking about it. Um, and we've talked about covering one of their records at some point. Talking about doing an episode on them, uh, it's kind of you kind of have to, so. yeah. It's one of those required albums for you and me, you know, to talk oh, about. Oh, yeah. So. Well, all right, anyway. man. Let's wrap this up. Yes. So, Q, where can, where, can they fi- where can they find us, man? Aside from our website, nofillerpodcast.com, where you can find show notes and all of our previous episodes and track listing for each episode, uh, where else could they find us? Well, we're, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, well, we're, we're part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Uh it is an awesome group of like-minded music lovers and we all just kind of geek out about music. Yes. There's probably like 20-30 different shows now in the network, man. It's it's kind of crazy how how varied it is too. There's a bunch of great content. Dude, we just brought on a new a new show called the Dad Bod Rap Pod. <laughs> dude, which, I I mean, name, dude, I love that name. What a great name. I love that name. So yeah. Yeah, dude. More than just rock and roll, we talk about. We try to talk about everything on this network. Um, obviously, you and I, we lean toward rock on the spectrum of of music that we love. But you know, there's there's if there's a, if there's a band that you like or a type of music that you like, surely there is something on the podcast network, the Pantheon Podcast Network, for you. There's podcasts that that focus on one artist, and that's the entirety of of every single episode. Like. Is it Rolling Bob Talking Dylan, the Shout It Out Loud podcast? It's a KISS podcast. Nothing obviously. but KISS. Yeah, dude. Um, just, just hop on to the Pantheon Podcast Network. That's pantheonpodcast.com, or you can just find it on any way that you get your podcasts. If you subscribe to that network, then you'll get our weekly show in the feed, as well as every show. You'll get the newest episode. And if you like pods in particular, you can follow them individually, but you can listen to everything, uh, by following the Pantheon podcast networks, uh, feed. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's the coolest thing about the network, dude. You know, there's, you can either listen to the podcast as if it's, uh, you know, like a a TV station and you can press play and you listen, it's just going to give you each new episode, you know. From one from one podcast to the next, or you can actually, you can find each one of our podcasts as its as its own separate thing. I think that's a really cool way to do it. Yeah, definitely. All right, anyways, man. So, kicking off our 90s stint here, um, I thought it was uh, appropriate for us to, to cover Smashing Pumpkins, because like you said, this is one of those bands that kind of defined what kind of music. This may have been, uh, honestly, Q, Pumpkins may have been the first grunge music that we heard. Uh, yeah i think it's possible right, it's very possible yeah absolutely um so again we're going to cover uh, stone temple pilots next will be our next full-length episode but before that next week we'll cut, we'll shout at you with a little sidetrack something pumpkins related we'll figure that out uh in the next week until then thank you as always so much for listening my name is quentin my name is travis y'all take care
2: Hi, everybody. This is Brian Reisman, host of the podcast Side Jams, which is now a proud member of the Pantheon family of podcasts. I've been a freelance entertainment journalist for 25 years now, and I often end up in conversations that go off on tangents. Suddenly, you're discussing someone's outside passion or hobby, something you didn't know about, and it leads into revelations about their character and about their life outside of their art. I've often had to cut those details out because a story had a strict word count or a specific focus. So here, the entire focus of the podcast is just on their side jam or side jams. For example, Allison Chan's frontman, William Duvall, spent some time talking to me about reading history, which led him into talking about his public school education and how it was so terrible in high school that he actually managed to get into a private school for free so his life could take a different course. In this series of podcasts, you're going to be hearing my interviews with musicians of all different backgrounds and genres, talking about everything from surfing. To collecting antiques, to stargazing. I hope you enjoy side jams. Please tune in regularly, and I will have a lot of interesting guests in store for you.
4: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football